In this Oddcast exclusive, we interview my friend Whitney, who is a young breast cancer survivor. You are listening to the DSV Oddcast. Welcome to the Oddcast, and uh, I have a special treat for you. I'm interviewing somebody that I knew way back in high school. Her name is Whitney. Say hi, Whitney. Hello. And uh, on the last episode, we discussed uh, cancer and how it affected us, and uh, I was able to uh, convince Whitney to come and tell her story, and so uh, let's let's dive in. I'm here too, but Yeah, Daniel was here as well. Yeah. Hi, Daniel. Hi. <laughs> All right, so, uh, Whitney, hi, how's it going? I'm good, how are you? I'm just dandy. <laughs> All right, um, uh, let's, let's just dive right in, let's rip, right. rip open some scars. Um, uh, when and how did you first find out you had breast cancer? Well, I found out, um, pretty much by accident, I guess you would say, um, a lot of people try to commend me for having found the lump myself, uh, but I actually was not doing a self-breast exam. I was just taking a shower and happened to feel something strange and decided to call and get it looked out. So the month of November in 2014, I went to the hospital a lot for biopsies and ultrasounds and a mammogram, and then eventually I was officially diagnosed with stage 1A triple positive invasive ductal carcinoma on December 1st of 2014. That's quite a math- mouthful. Yeah. It is. Uh, yeah. Like eight point font. Yeah. I know. Yeah. It's, it's really hard. I feel like I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous. Like, hi, my name is Whitney. Oh, man. <laughs> Every single time I tell someone. Okay. Yeah. Uh, all those cancer names have like crazy long names yeah. anyway they're all like yeah it is really strange and so you know before I was diagnosed I used to always just you assume that cancer is kind of just this blanket term mm-hmm. but once you really dive into it there's so many different types of cancer and then even just for breast cancer to be way more that's just an umbrella term for mm-hmm. there's different stages different types you're going to be hormone positive or hormone negative and it's really really complex right all right. Um, so, how did uh, uh, how did your family react to the news? Well, that was really hard. Um, I told my mom first, as far as family goes, because I lived with her at the time, and then uh, she and I are pretty close, and I think it brought us a lot closer. Um, she and I both spent, I think, the entire night researching. And then I decided at that time I didn't want to tell anybody, or at least I only wanted to tell close family and friends. Um, I wanted to keep it to myself. So I went the approach of telling about two to three people a day for about a week because that was all I could emotionally and mentally handle. Mm -hmm. So I then I think the next day told my dad, and he kind of was just, for lack of better words, oh shit, this is real, this is happening. Um, my brother had some choice words that I fully expected, but everybody else says he's a jerk for saying, but there's always seems to be somebody in the family that's like that. Um, I think honestly, surprisingly enough, telling my grandma was actually the hardest. Um, 
she started crying, and I think it's because, you know, my grandma's 76 years old, so if anything, she probably felt like it should have been her and not me, um, so that was probably the hardest person in my entire family to actually tell that I had been diagnosed, um, and she ended up actually coming to my surgery consultation later that day because she wanted to be involved and be part of it, and yeah. That's awesome. All right. Um... Uh, what were your first thoughts after your diagnosis, and what were some of your main concerns? Oh my gosh. I feel so vain saying this, but honestly, one of my first thoughts was, oh my god, I'm going to lose my hair. My sister was the same way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> you know, that's really, like I said, I was really naive about what cancer is and what it entails. I knew that people would get cancer, and then they go through chemo. And some people get sick and they unfortunately, you know, lose their battle to cancer and other people recover. So I was really naive to the whole process. And honestly, that was really all I knew is like, you get sick, you lose your hair. And yeah. so like, that's what I knew about cancer. Well, so people think it's because of the cancer, but it's, it's, it's because the of the treatment. treatment. Yeah, exactly. It's the treatment. So I feel sometimes feel vain for saying that, but honestly, like as a woman and as a young woman, my hair means so much to who I mm -hmm. am. Like you spend your whole life as a female cultivating this identity based around what your hair looks like. So that was really hard for me. Um, I thought that my life was over, you know, it was definitely a really big roller coaster of emotions. I was dating somebody at the time and I gave him an out. I told him that, you know, if it was too hard for him, he could have left because um, I didn't want him to feel like obligated, I guess, to stay yeah. during a really difficult time. So there was a lot of stuff going on. The hair was probably the biggest thing though. Right. Like well, yeah, that was, was literally like literally yeah. the first thought like mm -hmm. was Did, pretty bad. That's probably a good like three hours of crying and like It was with, pretty bad. Yeah. Like yeah, I was yeah. driving at the time that I got the phone Ooh. call too and it was like rough. pouring down rain. I had to pull over. I was supposed to go babysit for a friend. I had to like I was an hour late. I eventually actually did make it to her house. I probably should have just went home, but yeah, yeah it was pretty intense. So it's always rough getting all that information because it's like a flood of information just like hitting you. It really is. And then you have to like kind of question everything, and it's right. like you know you don't know where to begin. Exactly. Yeah. So you know, as I got that phone call, and she kind of gave me a very short rundown of what it meant. And then throughout the next few days, I kept calling back and was like, wait, well, what about this? Like, what does this mean? Can yeah. you tell me the specifics of my actual diagnosis, even though I had no idea what the hell IDC meant mm -hmm. or um, being hormone positive or HER2 positive? Like, I had no idea what any of that stuff meant. So she had to kind of break it down to me. And then, I, of course, you know, I ended up researching a lot on my own mm -hmm. and eventually actually also finding a bunch of other young women in a similar situation that were easy to connect with because it's so much easier talking to a real person and their experiences. I mean, mm -hmm. like, talking, talking to a doctor is always, you know, it's always like there's always that it's hard to relate to, you know what I mean? It really yeah. is. The nice thing, I guess maybe not nice thing, I found out a lot later on like throughout my treatment that two of my doctors had actually been cancer patients. Oh. So 
I felt like I could really connect with them on a much deeper level just yeah. because I they knew what I'd been through. Mm-hmm. And so I they've had, been they've been through the war. Exactly. So, so yeah. they knew like they understood my concerns when I would ask certain questions rather than kind of brushing it off. Mm-hmm. So there was definitely like a better level of understanding with those two doctors. Well that's that was that must have been really nice to have. It was. And yeah. I didn't find out until after the fact or like closer one of them was my radiation oncologist, and I didn't know until maybe halfway through treatment with him. And then the other one was my surgeon who um, inserted my portacast. Mm-hmm. And so I had no idea he had either. And he made like a really thin, really smooth incision when he inserted it. And I was so happy with it, especially after my lumpectomy ended up being a really large incision that I wasn't happy with. Mm. So. Okay. Um. Uh, what was your course of treatment, and uh, how did you manage the costs? Oh, man. It's like, you want to talk about complicated. Yeah. <laughs> that is complicated. Um, let's talk about cost first. That's actually okay. pretty easy. So I got, I guess, I don't know if you would say lucky in that situation, but I in so I was diagnosed at the end of 2014. I found out December 1st and then I immediately had surgery because in my mind it was let's get this thing out as soon as possible. So I had surgery two weeks later on December 15th um, and that day I um, applied for financial assistance. I had Kaiser. I still have Kaiser. Um, In 2013 I worked at a restaurant and I made less than $20,000 so I applied for the financial assistance and I actually did get approved. So Luckily, for I got approved for six months of nothing being having to pay for. So my surgery cost was covered. Um, the old, my chemo was covered. My radiation ended up being covered. Part is my health insurance. So I'm definitely very fortunate to the fact where the first half of treatment I got financial assistance, and the second half of treatment I actually ended up getting a job that had really good health coverage. So haven't paid very much out of pocket. However, I did go through a course of IVF to save eggs, and that is not covered by insurance. So that was probably after the medication and everything like that, and the doctor, and then now the storage fees, it's probably upwards of like $8,000. Wow. Yeah, and then I did cold cap therapy to try to save my hair, and that was not covered either, and that was probably... I did get a grant through a company, a nonprofit company that provides financial assistance for people who decide to use that if they qualify, um, which I got approved for, but I found out a little late, so I only used it, I think, three times, and so I probably paid close to $2,500 for the cold caps, so yeah, I mean, (laughs) that's a big price to pay, but I'm so happy that I'm sitting here in front of you with, like, almost a full head of hair, Right. (laughs) so... So costs, I mean, I've heard horror stories of Mm -hmm. what it's like to be somebody with horrible health coverage or having somebody outside of the Kaiser plan that's like Blue Shield or Mm -hmm. anything like that where the costs just become astronomical and it's it's definitely a disservice to... It's a hard hard life for people who can't get approved for this. Exactly, and you know, it's, it's definitely sad that that's why you find out that a lot of people end up being stage three or stage four because they don't catch it early enough because they don't have the health coverage in order to go sooner to find it. I mean, this is what I tell people all the time too is when I first found the lump, um, I called 
At first, I had my mom feel it to see if she thought it was weird, too. Right. So that yeah. was really we- a weird yeah. experience at the age of 27 to be like, Mom, touch my boob. But <laughs> <laughs> like somebody else needs to tell me that this doesn't feel right. Right. And then two days late, I waited two days, called the advice nurse at Kaiser, who then told me, oh, well, it's not uncommon for young women of your age to have really dense breasts, and maybe you should wait a month before going in and I said no I yeah. don't want to wait I fe- I know my body and this doesn't feel right so then I made an appointment with my gynecologist and three days later I was in to see her and then two three hours later I was at the breast care center in Oakland getting examined by a specialist so I mean I definitely advocate for like being pushy yeah, <laughs> like definitely. advocating for I mean, your own health care I and mean, you did what most people take forever to do exactly yeah. so that's crazy but so now getting to treatment yeah. so I like I said I was really pushy as far as um finding out like what needed to be done I knew that chemo and radiation were going to be on the table mm-hmm. um just from the very little research that I had done my mom was really hopeful that those wouldn't be required, depending on how large or small the lump was. Um, but just because of my age, they were going to treat it really aggressively. So I honestly had not even thought about what type of surgery I wanted until the doctor asked me when I went to a surgery consultation. He asked if I had thought about if I wanted a lumpectomy or a mastectomy, and I was like, I really hadn't even thought about it. (laughs) So it's like, I thought I was just going to save it. Like, I really Mm -hmm. don't want to cut off anything Mm -hmm. as much as possible. Hadn't even given a mastectomy a thought just because of my age. So luckily I told him that, and he agreed that he felt like so long as the ultrasound and the mammogram came back um, small enough, that a lumpectomy was a good option for me just because the tumor size was fairly small. Mm -hmm. So I went in, like I said, December 15th, which was two weeks after my official diagnosis. I had a lumpectomy with an, I think it's an auxiliary lymph node dissection just to make sure the cancer hadn't spread into my lymph nodes in my armpit. Um, So they removed the tumor in my breast and it ended up, they had originally thought that it was about 2.3 centimeters just based on the ultrasound. Mm-hmm. It actually ended up being 1.5 centimeters, oh, so okay. it was smaller. So yeah. it downgraded it from stage 2 to stage 1A just based on the size. And then they took one full lymph node and then two partial lymph nodes. It hadn't spread to the lymph nodes, so that was good, which also made it the stage 1. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, they got clear margins, which is a good thing they got, which means that they just got a really clear... Um, they cut out, I guess, all of the surrounding tissue and fat around the tumor. So they got clear margins. It was a good clean cut. So there's nothing left. Exactly. So some tumors, I guess, can end up having like legs that sort of spread out Mm -hmm. and make it a lot more difficult to remove the entire thing. And some people end up having to go in and have multiple surgeries. So then I talked to my oncologist about my options just to do the fact that I'm young I don't have a family so he and I talked about doing the round of IVF um, to save eggs so I talked to a fertility specialist who then agreed to have me come in and do a blood test and do all the testing to see where I was at to see if it would even be worth saving eggs 
Um, it, in conjunction with that, I also did genetic testing to see if I had the two genes that carried the breast cancer gene, which is BRCA1 mm -hmm. and BRCA2, to see if I was positive or negative, because that was going to influence my decision on whether or not I saved the eggs, yeah. just because I had already decided that if either one of those came back positive, I just wasn't going to have kids, so I wasn't going to spend the money to save the eggs. Yeah, just, you don't want to pass that on. Right, and I mean, it's not a guarantee that the genes will result in breast cancer mm -hmm. um, in my offspring, but just I couldn't mentally go into that knowing that it was even a yeah. possibility just because I felt like that wouldn't be fair. Like, what if I did have a child and they did end up getting breast cancer? I would feel so guilty. So I just already had already made that decision for myself. Like, I do know people that have the gene but aren't don't have breast cancer, but then they spend their whole lives worrying. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I just didn't want to put a potential child in that position. So my genetic testing actually ended up coming back clear. So no BRCA1 or BRCA2. And that, you would think that'd be really exciting, but at the same time, it was almost a disappointment because it was like, well, then why did this happen? Like, there was no answer right. to the why. And yet, I have met another young woman who is BRCA2 positive, and she even told me at the time that, you know, that really didn't solve that question for her. Mm -hmm. So, she's like, even though I did my genetic testing came back positive, it really didn't answer that why question for me. Like, that question is still there, so... So then I did decide to do the IVF, so which that pushed back my chemo because you can't start chemo if you're going to do the IVF just to save the eggs. So luckily I had a very understanding oncologist. I told him that it was incredibly important to me because I'd always seen myself having a family up until that point. Mm. Um, so he was very understanding. I know some oncologists are really pushy and want people to get their chemo started. And it's unfortunate that that happens, just because I feel like a lot of women lose out on that opportunity. Yeah, I wonder why they, they, they're so, like, I think about it. they're so focused on treating the cancer that they forget about the person, mm, you mm. know? Like, I think that's a yeah, really big They really want issue. to succeed. Right. And, and so they're yeah. really focused on treating the mm. problem, but they forget about the person behind that problem, yeah. you know? Like, we all have lives and things that are going on mm -hmm. beyond cancer, so... He was very understanding, and I told him, I was like, you know what, it's only going to push my treatment out by a few weeks, and I really don't think that's going to make that big of a difference. Mm -hmm. I guess typically the standard is that they like to start chemo treatment about eight weeks post-surgery and mm -hmm. no later, and I think I started maybe 10 or 12 weeks. So I was a little bit behind, but I, I felt personally like I could live with that decision. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so then I had some trouble scheduling my porticast surgery because of I was working full-time at the time so that also influenced when I could start chemo because I didn't want to start the chemo without the porticast because I had the lymph nodes removed on my left side I can't use that side for any blood draws IVs or blood pressure so that means I'd have to use my right arm only mm -hmm. and I had to get 18 infusions Six of them were the full chemo, and then the rest were the Herceptin only, which targeted the HER2 positive part of my tumor. So that's a lot of times to get stabbed in one arm, especially yeah. when the chemo kills your veins. So I had to wait a little while. I had the IVF procedure done and then did the portacast surgery on February 23rd of 2015. 
and then a week later on March 2nd. I just realized, was that today? That's today. Hey, a year ago today I started chemo. Wow. <laughs> so, woo. I just realized, hey, it's another so, anniversary. Ha- happy anniversary. Mazel tov. <laughs> so, started a year ago today, my full treatment of chemo. So, it was six rounds of TCHP, which is Taxotere, Carboplatin, Herceptin, and Progetta, every three weeks. And then, like I said, after that, I still had to go in every three weeks to complete a year of treatment for just the Herceptin only, which was a lot easier and manageable. I didn't really have that. So how how was that administered? Through IV. Through IV. So through IV, through the port cath in my chest. (laughs) So through penny. Penny the port. Yes, I named my port, which maybe sounds a little weird, but I figured I needed to get personal with her because she was living inside of me for a year. She's going to be around for a little bit. Exactly. (laughs) Might as well let her take her coat off, you know. You can stay a while, get comfortable. Grab her a glass of water or something, you know. Yeah, uh, one of the things with uh, chemotherapy is, like, they don't really, when people hear chemotherapy, they just think, it's chemotherapy, but there's like multiple ways that could be administered. Yes. Like so there's pill pills, pills, yeah. For I know plenty of people that have leukemia and they do get their chemotherapy after they do infusions for a while. I think it's about two years worth. Um, they do tend to usually go to a pill form, mm-hmm. and I didn't know that either. And actually, I have a friend of mine who was diagnosed when she was 25. And I've known her since kindergarten with leukemia. And their hospital, their chemo is administered mm-hmm. um, really slowly. And they have to stay overnight for like two days wow. to get all of their chemo. And wow. I, so I was grateful that like my days mm-hmm. were long at the infusion center for about yeah. eight hours or so. Mm-hmm. But at least I could leave. Yeah, that, that's that's what my sister had was something around eight hours-ish yeah. or so, something like that. There's also like radiation so I did have radiation, yeah. So I ended my chemo, the full chemo regimen, um, in June of last year. And then about three and a half weeks later, they waited just a little while just so I could kind of recover and rest and get rid of one set of side effects for a whole new set of side effects. Yeah. So then I did have um, radiation to my entire higher left breast, a big like rectangular area. Mm. Um, it was thirty rounds, so wow. five days a week for six weeks. Whew. Yeah. Like, yeah. Then, was it six weeks straight? Like yeah. Like back to back consecutive. Yeah. I maybe they gave you the weekend off. Yeah, they oh. gave you the weekend That's off. That's so generous. Right. <laughs> because they're closed. Right. Like, <laughs> probably more for the workers. It yeah. is <laughs> because they're closed. Right. That's yeah. it. So, yeah, it was pretty intense. And, you know, it's strange is that so many people in my life were celebrating the fact that my chemo was done and I was sitting there just terrified because I was like, well, yeah, you guys are celebrating, but we can't celebrate just yet. Like, yeah. it's not over. It's not like, over. one thing may be done, mm-hmm. but now I'm moving on to this whole other issue. And it almost was traumatic stopping the chemo just because it was then in my mind what are we doing now to fight the cancer like what is it and so it took me a really long time to actually transition from saying I have cancer to I had cancer just because of how it worked in my mind and so now when people ask me like when do you consider like your date that you didn't have cancer anymore now I say surgery like the tumor didn't Mm -hmm. like didn't spread. So as soon as that tumor was gone, I was done having cancer. And then yeah. we were just treating mm-hmm. any 
possible, like okay. lingering. Lingering. Right. So it's gotcha. just preventative. Yeah. Right. Like okay. everything, like it's so aggressive. And like I said, my mom was really hoping for like only having to do surgery, but unfortunately that's not the case. So it was definitely very traumatic to end chemo and then start radiation. And the radiation is just a whole other struggle because even though the appointments were really short, they're about 15, 20 minutes long, it was really draining to have to go to this center every day for, yeah. for six weeks. Like, yeah. it was right in the middle of my day. Mm-hmm. So I actually ended up taking, I finally got it in my head that it was totally okay for me to take time off of work. Yeah. Like, even though I didn't have any sick leave built up because I started the new job. I just took leave without pay for eight weeks. So I was like, I can't do it anymore. I worked full time all through chemo and somehow like miraculously wow. managed to do that. Like for those who don't know, like chemo makes you weak. It does. Right? Yeah. I took all of my energy, focus and attention to learn that new job and sit there. Wow. And it's crazy now. Like after I finally have opened up to some of my coworkers mm-hmm. and told them about the fact that I went through all of that and they're have all said they never would have known or guessed it at all if yeah. if I hadn't told them, and that was my goal. <laughs> like the, that, thing, the thing with cancer is like it, it gives you this kind of resilience, you know. Like, yeah. I mean, for people who go through it. Yeah. yeah. So, it definitely was very draining, and the side effects affect everybody differently. Like that is definitely very true. Like everybody has different problems, um, so it was hard to sit there and it affected my focus and my energy mm-hmm. so I think going to work it helped me have something else other than cancer to focus on but then by the end of the day I couldn't use anything else like I went home and I was done right <laughs> all right um I, I just want to touch briefly on cold caps um a lot of people don't know what that is I don't know what that is at all, all. Right. Um, so do you want to just like absolutely tell me what what's going on with that just quickly yeah. okay so Cold caps have actually gained a lot of exposure in the media recently, um, just because of the, I think it's the Digni cap has kind of come up in studies and over the news media as far as being able to save your hair. Mm-hmm. But cold cap, like scalp cooling therapy has been around for a few years, and the whole idea is that you cool your scalp in order to kind of, I think it's like shock the hair follicles and put them to sleep essentially Hmm. so that way the chemo doesn't affect them and that way your hair doesn't fall out so Mm -hmm. like I said my biggest concern was losing my hair just because of having my sense of worth my sense of self my sense of identity and being a female and having this one small thing that I could control in the midst of everything that was uncontrollable and out of my hands So someone along the way, I think I went to a support group for young women that my mom and I ended up being the only two people there. So while that kind of sucked, it was actually really nice to be able to have this one-on-one conversation with the two breast care coordinators in Oakland. So one of them mentioned that I really reminded her of another young woman who was part of that group who had used cold caps. So she gave me her information and asked if it was okay for her to like trade our information with each other. So then eventually, her name's Rebecca, she ended up calling me and I had so many questions for her because she was my first real live person who was close in age range to me. She's 35 now, 34 at the time, so not that close in age, but, but closer than other people. Right. So 
she had used the cold caps and so she gave me the contact information for a company called Chemo Cold Caps. There's also another really big brand name called Penguin Cold Caps and the idea is is that you basically they have these like ice packs but they're shaped for your head hmm. so it's like a cap mm-hmm. and what I ended up that chemo cold caps they shipped me everything that I needed so as far as like a cooler a dolly um the caps and then little pieces of foam to protect my head so like I said the idea is that it shuts down your hair follicles and kind of puts them to sleep so that way it can you can attempt to save your hair I did still lose hair but I saved most of it um so I asked my oncologist first before even going through with it if he was okay with me trying it because nobody at my hospital had ever tried it before. Mm-hmm. So, and he said yes. Luckily, like I said, I really liked my oncologist. He was very supportive with all of my ideas and everything that I had. And he was very supportive as far as me doing what I could to try to live my life like as normally as possible. So he was okay with it. So I called the chemo cold caps company and they kind of gave me a rundown connected me with another young woman who has a very similar diagnosis to me Mm -hmm. who used them and she was very open and honest with me about the fact that she did still lose hair but um, saved a lot of it and she had three or four kids I think so for her it was a matter of being and looking like herself for her kids so that way they didn't think she was sick so it involved it was a very involved process of I woke up at like 6 30 the morning of my treatments mm-hmm. to go to a dry ice distributor, got 50 pounds of dry ice, took it home, packed this giant, like, I don't even know how many gallon cooler with the dry ice, put the caps in there, put some of the ice into bags to like cool the caps. And those needed to be chilled for about three hours prior to my first infusion. Mm-hmm. So I'd pack the cooler first thing in the morning, get ready to go. Then we'd head down to Kaiser to the infusion center go upstairs and the way it needed to be done is the first cap needed to be on my head for 40 it needed to be on my head 40 minutes prior to my first chemo drug which was the taxotere I think so they would give me my pre-meds and I would put the cap on for 20 minutes and then the caps needed to be changed every 20 to 25 minutes for I think six hours so we were that's a that's a lot of rotating it was a lot of rotating so I had six caps total Mm -hmm. so I put have one cap on my head and they were all numbered so it was kind of like a train like one would be Mm -hmm. on my head and then we'd scoot them all over and put the next one at the bottom so that way it could get cold again by the time it needed to be back on my head it's a very involved process it was super involved my mom and I got into a really good routine because she was the one who helped me with it and it was definitely a long process it was very cold because the caps were obviously like is that on dry ice so i think they needed to be chilled to negative 34 degrees that's cold it was cold so i had it's brisk yeah yeah, you know (laughs) your normal average she said cold day yeah yeah your your normal average antarctica day yeah just okay i think it was minus i'll have to double check but i'm pretty sure it was pretty cold yeah it was pretty cold so i had I prepared as much as possible. You really like over prepare for chemo because mm-hmm. everybody tells you, like I said, they have like one person really had bad nausea and the other person had really bad 
pardon me, diarrhea, and <laughs> somebody else threw up all the time, and, you know, so I, I seriously did as much as possible to prepare for anything. Yeah. So I went to chemo every day with a giant bag. So I had my chemo bag with me in addition to this giant cooler looking like a space alien with this weird thing on my head <laughs> that I was changing every 20 minutes. And so I wore a heating blanket while I had the cap on my head to kind of counteract yeah. that coldness. And really, surprisingly, it was only about the first two or three caps that were cold and then you kind of got used to it. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. you're just like, okay, this is what it feels like. It's cold. Like, mm-hmm. So, and then it was strapped onto my head. I had like a little piece of foam across my forehead to protect my forehead and then two, oddly enough, panty liners on my ears to protect my ears from mm-hmm. getting any frostbite. Yeah. So, it was definitely very involved. So, it had to be on my head I think for six hours from the start of the first chemo drug so I wore them home so I would leave the hospital with them on my head and my mom and I would stop in on the side of the road to change them if I needed to because mm-hmm. it probably took like 25 minutes to get home so we'd have to change it like pull over change them go home and then it needed to stay on my head, I think, for two or three hours after the last chemo. So it was a really long day, like, just all together. It sounds like a lot. So, and you did that for how long straight? It, was, um, it only needed to be done the day of the chemo. Oh, okay. So well, not every, God. yeah, not every day, thankfully, only the day of the chemo while it was being administered. Um, and then the care process of my hair mm-hmm. was also very involved so I didn't wash it's really gross to say now but I didn't wash my hair three days prior to a chemo day mm-hmm. or three days after so basically I was walking around it, with like a dirty greasy head you, you had like one week yeah one day a week where you could wash <laughs> pretty it, much yeah because then it was every three days so it it probably boiled down to like once a week where I washed my hair mm. and then I slept on a satin pillowcase I only used a comb um, I used a really sensitive shampooing conditioner and tried to just be really gentle washing my hair. I slept with it in a braid. Um, when I was at work, I would just put it in a really loose bun with a clip rather than a hair tie because the hair tie would pull on it. Um, yeah, it was a lot of care. And then no heating tools, so no so blow dryer, no straightener, no yeah. curling iron, nothing like that. So I had a big old frizzy bed head for like eight months. <laughs> Yeah, but you gotta do what you gotta do. I know. So, I mean, I'm happy I did it. I had picked out a wig. I went to a wig store um, and picked out a wig. I had it, you know, that is, I didn't buy it because I wanted to see if this was going to work first. But at least I had an idea of like, okay, this one's the one that I like. Have this wig store. It's there if I need it. And I wanted to give up, I think, by like the second round because you, it takes about... 21 days, which is why the chemo for me is every was every three weeks. It takes about 21 days for it to really hit your system. So it wasn't until the second round, about a few days after the second round, that my hair started to fall out. Mm-hmm. And by then, once it started falling out in clumps, it's like, I don't want to do this. Even mm-hmm. though I'd already, by that time, had done it twice. So I was a third of the way done with my chemo. I was like, this is so involved. It's so intense. Like, mm-hmm. it just took so much time. But 
luckily I had a couple friends and family that kind of strong-armed me into continuing to do it because, you know, I, looking in the mirror, think that it's worse than it is for someone who's an outsider and sees me, right. you know, mm-hmm. on a daily basis. Yeah. So it affects them differently than it affects me. Like, it's to me, it's really drastic and dramatic but other people, you know, reassured me, like, if I didn't know you, I would have no idea yeah. that mm-hmm. that you were going through chemo, and that was part of the goal. Right. So, yeah. I, I luckily stayed with it, and now, you know, like I said, I have hair, and I did end up with, like, a bald spot around the top, just because we didn't get good contact with my scalp the first time, so... That does kind of suck, but I found, like, a hair-filling fiber... So, yeah. it worked. All right. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier about, like, keeping, like, not wanting to, like, share the news with everybody. Yeah. But eventually, you did start a blog about I it. I did. Yeah, and that's kind of how I found out about yeah. it, actually. I was one of the uh, people that kept commenting and, go, go yeah. away. Yeah. And so, so uh, what, what, what was that decision like? How did you decide to actually start sharing your story? You know what's really crazy is I decided randomly... To post about it when I was sitting in the chemo chair. <laughs> like, it was my second infusion, I think, and I was just sitting there. And I decided at that moment, I was just like, you know what, I don't know really what triggered it, but decided that I could use my story to influence and inspire other people. And it was, I feel like it was more draining to actually keep it a secret than it was to just be open about it. Um, it was really hard for me, just because I usually am a very open person when it comes to like talking to people, I don't hide very much. So it was hard to keep this gigantic secret. It felt like it was just weighing me down. So rather than continue to stress myself out and add more pressure to my life, it just felt like it was easier to open up about it. And I felt like I could use the support. Like I knew that nobody was gonna, you know, comment or react badly to it other than maybe my brother (laughs) like I said his comment was totally expected Mm -hmm. so I just kind of on a whim decided to do it and the outpouring of just love and support and encouragement was you know a reassurance for me that it was definitely the right thing to do rather than people randomly asking me how I was doing one at a time. Yeah, that must get exhausting. It does get exhausting. So I just felt like writing a blog was a good way for me to have an outlet to just kind of get what I was feeling out there. Yeah. And I don't want to say that cancer is glamorous, but I feel like with news media and celebrities getting diagnosed all the time, like, yeah. you know, Angelina Jolie is a big... Yeah. You know, she's not diagnosed, but going through her double mastectomy just because she was positive for the BRCA1 gene, like, that gets a lot of attention, and it almost does feel like it's this glamorized thing. So Mm -hmm. I felt like by writing about my experiences and being honest about them, people could not only relate, but really see how traumatic this experience is, and just a way for me to just be like, this is what it's really like. Yeah, so you can just, like, ground the glamour. Right. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. so... Try, like a, a lot of like the news organizations, they talk about breast cancer. It's almost I hate to use the term, but it's almost like the sexy cancer. It like is. everybody and talks about it. Exactly. And, and so <laughs> to try to like take the shine off of it is actually right. really important. Yeah, I, I mean it's that whole pink ribbon movement. Like you know Susan mm-hmm. G. Komen and Avon, and what you don't Avon, realize yeah. is that 
hardly any of that money goes yeah. to breast cancer research. That's, that's like, the, it's sad. That's the hard truth. It is. Mm-hmm. I mean, Everyone's so... sporting it, put those magnets on everyone's cars. Exactly. The NFL wears pink jerseys and pink armbands and stuff, and, like, right. none and of I mean, that goes to them. And, yeah. Right. Like, I know the, like, the month of February, a lot of firefighters will wear pink shirts and stuff. I don't exactly know what they contribute, but it is, it's just this whole, I found this picture in my phone the other day. During the month of October last year, I got eggs from the grocery store, and there was a Susan G. Komen stamp with a pink ribbon on it. And I was on like, all right, on, no, on each egg. No. Oh, yes. what the damn? <laughs> what? <laughs> on, on each, each egg was stamped with a pink ribbon, and I was just like, how the hell is this infiltrating my poultry? <laughs> like, yeah, this is, are you serious? And, and who, I want to know who was paid to, like, stamp Tampa, each egg. Right? Like, yeah. From a machine, probably. Probably, you yeah. Know. Still, like, to be the person that has to build that machine, like, okay, what we're thinking is that eggs, but with pink ribbons on it. I know. <laughs> it, it was just baffling to me, so, you know, it, it's really unfortunate that yeah. it's this, like you said, it's a sexy cancer. It's, you know, this great thing. And I know so many other women that are diagnosed with like ovarian cancer. It doesn't mm-hmm. get nearly as much light mm-hmm. um, as breast cancer does. And I don't have any idea how that happens. It doesn't, it doesn't roll off the tongue on, in the media. It mm-hmm. doesn't, and no. It's, it's, it's hard. And the, the one thing that, that bothers me a little bit is like when people wear pink or the ribbons and stuff like that, it's, there's more to be done than to just wear it. Exactly. Yeah, that's so true. But, yeah. All right. So, um, I guess next we'll we'll go in a different direction now. Uh, How has breast cancer affected your outlook on life? So, (laughs) it's definitely changed. Um, Before I was diagnosed, I was making this really big effort to live a much more positive life. And I thought I was doing a really fantastic job at yeah, that. Like, I remember, yeah. Like, I was really trying to find silver linings in every single situation, and then life kind of just crapped on me really bigly. And, yeah. you know, it eventually, once I got over the shock of it, just used that as, like, a really big motivating factor to continue to try to live that positive life. Like, it was really hard to do, and it was a really big struggle. Um, but... I did my best to try to stay positive throughout that whole situation, and I had so many people that I interacted with, even just within the first month of getting diagnosed, and like talking to the geneticist and the oncologist and the surgeon, just tell me that they were so inspired and amazed by the fact that I did stay positive, because I decided really early on that I wasn't going to let this affect me. So I decided very early on that this was only going to be one chapter of my life and I wasn't going to let it consume me. I was going to deal with it head on and, you know, whatever happened, happened. And if it happened again, I would deal with it then. Like I could not even think about the possibility of this coming back or having a recurrence. So for me, I just had to approach it as it's going to be this isolated incident. It is one chapter of my life. It is not my overall story. Cancer is not going to define me as a person. It is just a part of me. Like, they're not even a part of me. It's just something that I'm going through. And that's like a big mantra that I had in my head the whole time was just cancer doesn't define me. It's only something that I'm going through right now. So while 
it is something that I went through. I don't think that I am a cancer patient. One time somebody asked, or didn't ask me, but they mentioned that I was sick, and I just immediately shut them down and said, I don't, I've never considered myself sick, yeah. ever. Like, I, I don't know. I didn't see myself that way. Okay. So, I, I mean, it has changed my outlook on life really greatly, and now I kind of just want to live really fearlessly and say yes to new opportunities and yeah yeah, it's definitely changed in a very positive way big ups to you definitely (laughs) um uh what advice would you give to someone who was just diagnosed my biggest advice is to be your own advocate like that i think is the most important thing like i said and we've touched on it here and there is just people kind of get lost in the process Mm -hmm. they do what their doctors tell them to do rather than kind of really researching or going after um more answers like and getting deeper into that whole probably spectrum of your diagnosis your treatment plan what other people have been through and don't be afraid to get a second opinion is a really big thing too. Like most insurance companies will pay for that. They will let you get a second or even a third opinion if you don't like a specific doctor or um, treatment option that they have. So those are probably two of the biggest things is yeah, being your own advocate. And a lot of people get stuck with yeah. with, like, with the doctor. They feel like they're they feel like they're stuck. With right, the and I understand that just because, like I said, I had that whole really big pressure to like let's get treatment started let's get it out of me let's Mm -hmm. get this show on the road like you really feel that but at the same time like you got to take into consideration do you like your doctor your oncologist is going to be somebody that you're stuck with probably for the rest of your life like at least very closely like for Mm -hmm. me I saw my oncologist every three weeks and now it was up to every nine weeks and now I'll see him every four months like you have this very involved intimate relationship with these people yeah. like they're part of your everyday life for however long your treatment goes so I say it's very important to like those people to have people that understand your goals and like where you're coming from so it's definitely a big thing great um uh, is there any other ways that you're working on uh, raising awareness right now Absolutely. So this was also unintentional, but somehow I decided that I really wanted to use my voice in a very public way. So in addition to writing my blog and also sharing everything on Instagram and Facebook, Mm -hmm. for the most part, um, I did end up writing an essay for the Bay Area Cancer Society, or I think it's Bay Area Cancer Connections, which is in Palo Alto, which is also a nonprofit. Um, they had a writing contest, and a friend of mine encouraged me to submit something to that. So I did submit to that, and I actually ended up winning that contest. So my essay on my IVF process and saving eggs got published in their little newsletter, and I did a reading. So that was one small thing, at least in the Bay Area, that I was able to do, which was really nice. And then few weeks after that, actually, another nonprofit that is nationwide called the Young Survival Coalition, which focuses on breast cancer in young women and men between the ages of 18 to 40, um, had a video submission contest of just giving, I think it was called In Your Own Words, and giving advice to people um, through a video, and submitted that, 
and actually ended up winning that contest too by wow. some luck. So thank you. Yeah. So that was really weird to see that and actually like be submitted and chosen for that. So my some of my pictures that I submitted along with that video have been used on social media for um, the Young Survival Coalition's Instagram and Facebook page. Um, and some of the quotes like from my video have been on there. So that's been really cool to see. Um, and then I actually started doing CrossFit a week after radiation ended. Wow. Yeah. Well played. <laughs> so I had been really in shape in 2014 up until getting diagnosed. I was really trying to get in shape and I wanted to do a fitness competition and that kind of went out the window because a really big side effect with chemo is gaining weight and yeah. holding in water. Mm -hmm. Like it's a very common side effect from the steroids. So you have water retention and you just kind of gain weight because it's of all the drugs that you're on. So I ended up gaining a little over 20 pounds throughout chemo. So I decided to start CrossFit the week after radiation ended to lose the weight and also because I wanted to get back in shape and I'd always been curious about trying it. Yeah. So through CrossFit, I found another nonprofit organization called Barbells for Boobs, which is a nonprofit that is geared towards CrossFit and also raises awareness for, again, young breast cancer patients, men and women, between the ages of 18 to 40. Mm -hmm. um, so they really shine light on that, and they, um, every year, have an event in October that people fundraise for and can raise money, and it goes to their nonprofit and then directly goes to treating young men and women that are underprivileged and need to get treatment or screening. So your money goes straight to these people, cool. which is awesome. It's very, very cut and dry. Yeah. So what's exciting is, is through that process and through my CrossFit journey, I have now made a connection with the founder of Barbells for Boobs. Cool. So next week, actually, I'm going to the yearly conference that the Young Survival Coalition holds, which is in Atlanta, Georgia, and it's a three-day-long conference that has breakout sessions of different topics for young women that are facing breast cancer. And Ziana from Barbells for Boobs is going, and she and I are actually going to be rooming together. So not only am I going to this conference that's geared towards young women with breast cancer, and I'm pretty sure I'm probably going to end up seeing my face around mm -hmm. there most likely <laughs> i'm also going to meet the founder of the other nonprofit barbells for boobs which is so this is a really big awesome weekend of that getting, is so cool yeah, yeah getting to like meet someone that i really admire and appreciate everything that she's done um yeah i don't know it's been a really crazy ride wow <laughs> and for those who don't know like you know google crossfit it's no joke like, it's, it's really no joke. If you haven't heard about it already. I know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. But it, it really isn't. Like, it really takes a lot of endurance and strength mm -hmm. it does. to do it. Absolutely. And I commend you for that. Thank because, you. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoy it. So. That's so cool. All right. Um, that's basically all I got. Danny, do you have anything else you wanted to ask? Um, or? Not really. I mean, I just wanted, like... I want to give you the opportunity like, to plug all of this stuff that you've been, oh, that you've been mentioning so yeah. our listeners can, like, check it out and, like, find other ways to support it and things like that and get more information. Yeah, so, I mean, I definitely would say if you're in the Bay Area, look into Bay Area Cancer Connections. Um, 
Young Survival Coalition is definitely a very good nationwide thing, and they do events all throughout the year as far as, like, their conference, and they do an annual um, Tour de Pink, which is, like, a cross-country bike ride that raises awareness. And like I said, Barbells for Boobs is the CrossFit one, and they do an event most local or most CrossFit affiliates participate, and they end up um, doing a Barbells for Boobs event in the month of October, and all that money that gets raised goes straight to the nonprofit, which then gets turned back into the community. And then there's actually another CrossFit organization called Everyday Warrior, which is another nonprofit, and they also are geared towards cancer patients and donate money. Um, they pick out people, I guess, that have been nominated throughout the year and give those people who are struggling with their finances through cancer um, the funds to get through treatment. So yeah. it's a nice thing that I really like about CrossFit is there's a lot of community. So And then in breast cancer, there's a lot of community, and they get tied in a lot together in those kind of nonprofits and it really raises awareness to the fact that like we've talked about breast cancer is not glamorous and it affects people of all ages I mean I'm 27 and one of the or I was 27 at the time 28 now and one of the biggest things that annoyed me in my research was seeing breast cancer affects women that are mostly over the age of 40 in every single liter- piece of literature I yeah. read. And that got so frustrating and so old. And then even other people would say, you're too young for this. And it's like, no, it happens. It's, <laughs> just, right. not, it's just not publicized. It's just, I exactly. even heard, I even think I heard probably through you that uh, they were trying to up the age for mammograms to 45. They did. And I was just thinking, but but my friend, who right. uh, was diagnosed exactly. at 27, so... Yeah. I would say they should lower the age. Exactly. And I mean, I know, I understand that, like, one of the girls that I, one of the women that I know that was diagnosed, she felt, she was on the fence about whether that age should be lowered. Um, I think the standard age was 40, and then it got moved to 45, but I really feel like it should be 30, 35, somewhere in that range. Mm-hmm. Um which still wouldn't have caught you anyway. No. <laughs> and like I said, that that nurse, that advice nurse was like, oh, just wait a month. And if I had waited a month, who knows how, how quickly that would have grown or, mm-hmm. you know, what stage I would have been at if I had waited a month. Mm-hmm. Because the type of tumor that I had with it being HER2 positive, it was 100% HER2 positive, which is a protein that overdevelops in the tumor and causes the tumor to grow faster. Yeah. So that's... Probably a big explanation mm-hmm. for why one day I didn't feel it and the next day I did. Like, right. Well, I think yeah. that was a good call that you you didn't listen to the advice nurse. Yeah. But the thing with the advice nurse is that they try to best give you the advice um, over the phone, right? Yeah. Over the yeah, phone. it was over and, the phone. And it's like, you, if you need to get it checked out, you know, check get it checked out. Yeah. And unfortunately enough, you know, it worked in your favor. It did. So, and like I said, I have a great team of doctors that I really trust and appreciate. And so... I, uh, luck had a lot to do with it, but also just like being advocating for your own healthcare is so important in this day and age where people just kind of turn a blind eye to it. So I think it's helped me kind of deal with my situation by using my voice. It's, I've really kind of coped with it and by being honest and laying everything out on the table, Mm -hmm. it helps me really like deal with the drama and the stress and the pressure and everything that's come along with this whole situation yeah i mean i think i think it's cool that like when you first started out you didn't really you know have 
uh, a demographic to relate to. Right. But now, through this, you have become your own. You become the advocate yeah. for other people. Yeah, exactly. Which I think is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, thank you very much, Whitney, for uh, coming, hanging out with us for like this last hour. No and problem. It's been a, it's been a very eye-opening and uh, yeah. very thought-provoking discussion. I really enjoyed it. The DSV Oddcast is produced by Daniel Banatow, Vince Gabrielson, and me, Sam Vegas. Music by Daniel Banatow. This has been an Oddcast. Oddcast.